Brief disclaimer this week, there is more mention of sexual assault. Check out the post on mythpodcast.com for more info. This week on Myths and Legends, we're back in the Norse sagas for the story of Hrof Kraki, a legendary Viking king from the time of Beowulf. And you'll see that if your date ends with you getting tarred and feathered, it did not go well. The creature this time is a one-legged woman who will either lure you into the wilderness to devour you or give you an all-you-can-eat shrimp buffet. This is Myths and Legends, episode 154A, Family Business. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins, and others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. So we're back in the old Norse sagas. The saga for this week and next, that of Hrof Kraki, king of Denmark, is just pure Norse saga. There are berserkers, remember that they're the Scandinavian warriors that would go into battle under the influences of stuff, wearing bearskins, maybe actually believing that they were bears. And if you remember from way back when, bear shirts is actually the origin of the name berserker. There are scheming kings, epic warriors, spirit animals, norns, trolls, elves, and a strange one-eyed wanderer who definitely is an Odin, but has some great things to say about Odin. Despite the story of Hrof Kraki intersecting in places with that of Beowulf, it's really its own standalone story. Written in the 13th century and set in the 6th, the story occurs around the same time as the legends of King Arthur, in a world where the Vikings were starting to push out in all directions and see how much of the medieval world they could dominate. Helgi remembered the fire. Fire and blood. Regan had found Helgi and his brother in their room that night. Even though Helgi hadn't been able to see the fire, he could smell the smoke. He'd heard the screams from outside. At seven, he was too young to know that his uncle had come at the head of a pack of berserkers to seize his father's city. King Halfdan of Denmark's order had been his final order. Regan would help the children escape to Vilfi's island. Vilfi knew the old ways, and, if threatened, he knew the old magic. If Vilfi couldn't keep the kids safe, then all the places of shelter would be filled with snow, as the old Icelandic saying went. As they sprinted past the dead strewn about the streets, tucking themselves in alleyways to avoid the flying blades, Helgi wondered if the world would ever be safe again. It was three years later, in the home of Jarl Seville, that Helgi, now going by the name of Ham, clenched his fist as the boys jeered at him. Hror, his brother, now called Hrani, placed his hand on Helgi's shoulder, calming him down. It was just the stupid boys and their stupid insults. Their exiled lives were worth more than temporary retribution, Hrani reminded him. They had lived for years on an island with the magician Vilfi, but King Frodi, their uncle, never stopped searching for them. Vilfi could only keep them hidden for so long, and soon, after a close call with Frodi himself, Vilfi had to send the boys away. Because of who the boys were, Vilfi couldn't give them an introduction to Jarl Seville. He couldn't give them anything more than advice. Keep your heads down, and never take your cloaks off. It was only at the command of Jarl Seville's wife, 
Signy, that the Jarl took the boys in. And at 10 and 12 years old, they had no choice but to sit in the back of the room and eat whatever was left over. They were leeches, he'd said. But even he wasn't heartless. And so they were teased for their scurvy or pox or whatever the reason was for them to keep constantly be wearing their hoods. And somehow, the boys kept their anger in check. Then, word arrived from Frodi, High King of Denmark, that the Jarl and his entire household were invited for a feast. You see, his sorcerers had continued seeking the boys, and outside of the protection of Vilfi's magic. And because of one utterance of one of their real names, all eyes had fallen on Jarl Seville's house. Thus, the invitation. The two beggar boys that were allowed to sleep in whatever room wasn't occupied were not invited. But that didn't stop Ham and Harani, remember the boys' fake names, from breaking two colts and following the Jarl's party all the way to the Danish capital. It was on that trip, when the winds blew their cloaks off, that the Jarl's wife, Signy, sighed. Oh no. Jarl Seville looked up. What was the matter? Signy hesitated. Did he remember how the two sons of the former king were wanted, dead or alive? Well, they were the two idiots trailing along behind. Jarl Seville glanced back at the boys with a questioning look. Are you sure? Signy nodded. She knew because they were her brothers. Signy was the slightly older sister of Helgi and Hror, who, betrothed and married off at 12, was now at the wise old age of 16. She knew approaching her brothers was out of the question. The fact that she was still alive was because she had been married off well before the coup. Really, she had nothing to do with her old family and was very much married to a powerful Jarl. She was safe, or so she thought, until dinner a few nights later, when King Frodi held a knife to her throat and commanded the seer to keep talking. Signy had interrupted the Sybil mid-sentence. The moment she realized where this was going, she had tossed some gold at the woman, way too much gold actually, for her to get herself a drink and stop annoying the table. It was then that King Frodi had seen through the ruse and stopped the party cold with a raised knife to Signy's throat. He would stop her words and, if necessary, even more. Frodi cleared his throat and told the Sybil to continue. The seeress scooped up the coins and spoke again. The boys were on Vilfi's island, she revealed. They were hiding the day Frodi arrived. And they? She sniffed at the air. They were here. Hror and Helgi. She saw where they sat and announced that they would rob King Frodi of life. Before she even finished her sentence, both boys were in the hall. Unknown to them, they were being followed. In the hallway, as they frantically searched for an exit, a shadow loomed over them. Hror turned with a start, while Helgi clenched his fists and readied himself for the last fight of his life, only to relax at the final moment. It was a familiar face, one half-remembered from a broken and forgotten childhood. It was Regan. The man didn't look at the boys, the ones that he had rescued from that very house years ago. He had taken an oath, an oath that shamed him, but an oath nonetheless, one to protect and support Frodi. He announced this to no one in particular, musing aloud. If King Frodi had killed his father and held his mother prisoner for three years, he would wait until the majority of the guests left tonight and then burn down the great hall, leaving just one exit. Regan unlocked the door, the one that led outside. If someone were to set the house on fire, he 
We'll be sure to get the loved ones out in time, he said, still looking at no one. The brothers paused. Okay, so like, should they be getting the people out or setting the house on fire? The exact roles were kind of ambiguous. Regan bobbed his head back and forth. Yeah, if someone was overhearing this, he realized he wasn't being super clear with the pronouns. He repositioned his feet, assuming a dramatic stance once more. If someone killed his father, blah, 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 then he would burn down the house. But then he could rest easy knowing that a third party would get his loved ones out in time. He apologized to no one in particular for their confusion. He was a Viking, after all. Any problem that couldn't be solved by hacking it with an axe wasn't really a problem he was comfortable with. Fire and blood. That's what led Hror and Helgi from their home. And just as King Frodi woke up to billowing smoke and screams of terror, that's what led him to the forms of Hror and Helgi, looming in the rain outside of the longhouse, gripping their axes like vengeful gods, waiting to send Frodi to the fate he had always feared. Yarrow Seville and Signy followed after the boys that night and helped them pile firewood along the edge of the longhouse, where Regan quietly spread the word to those who would like to see the rightful kings restored to maybe get a hotel tonight. King Frodi had followed the only path the boys purposely left for him and burst out into the rain and straight into the Sibyl's prophecy. Here was Horror and Helgi. They would be the death of him. Frodi shook his head as Regan stepped forward, breaking his oath to the one king to honor his oath to the former. Frodi drew his sword and then dropped it to the ground. Before they knew it, he was sprinting back into the burning longhouse. Helgi tried to follow, but Regan held him back. In moments, what was left of the wooden roof crumbled to the ground in a swirling cloud of sparks and ash. It was over. Hror turned and looked for his mother. For three years, she had been Frodi's captive. He begged Regan to see her, but the man hung his head. He had found her, and he had freed her. He had told her of the plan, and then she sat back down with a smile. She had outlived her own life, she said. For three years, all she had wanted was to join him, her husband, and her love. Regan had given her a wonderful gift, because she could do so knowing that her children would be safe. Regan had nodded and bowed to his queen as the smoke started to rise. Helgi smiled. It was his wedding day. And like all healthy marriages, he was both meeting his wife that day and informing her that it was their wedding day with a ship full of angry Vikings. The brothers had put their father's kingdom back together at ages 10 and 13 after the disaster that was King Frodi and they had ruled together for years. Then, one day, a king and a princess arrived from Britain all the way across the sea and Hror had fallen in love with the girl. He'd said that he was only going over for diplomatic reasons, but Helgi wasn't surprised when he didn't return, deciding instead to stay in Northumbria with his new wife. It worked out, too, because, as the story goes, Hror and Helgi had two different temperaments. Hror was calm, thoughtful, and easygoing, never roused to reaction, but rather, always thinking. He was an excellent leader, just about 1,400 years too early. For violent men in a violent world, however, Helgi 
was the perfect king. He was a proud and fierce warrior, and a whole head taller than his older brother. He went in axe swinging, preferring to trade words only with whoever was strong enough to withstand him. And that's how he approached his almost non-existent courtship with the Saxon queen Oluf. Helgi had heard rumors that, just to the south, in what would now be northern Germany, there was a queen who was just really sticking it to some guy named Arthur in Britain. Queen Oluf dressed and carried herself like one of Odin's shield maidens. And, through sheer strength of will, she had taken control of her kingdom when her father died, winning over potential adversaries and killing those who couldn't be mollified. Now, as an all-powerful queen, she was surprised and a little taken aback by the message she had just received. The king of Denmark, King Helgi, was approaching with a completely innocuous raiding party. And he and his buddies just wanted to have dinner. Queen Oluf sneered. Bowing low, her servants asked what they should do. She pursed her lips. They were caught unprepared by a Viking king. They had better get cooking while she thought of a solution. It was at dinner that Helgi proposed something, in that he proposed to Queen Oluf. This feast was to be their wedding feast, and tonight they would share a bed. Cool? Cool. Also, it didn't matter what Oluf said, because that's what was happening. Oluf smiled as she poured him more mead. Helgi didn't really understand how things worked here. She wasn't going to marry. Period. Helgi shrugged as he downed mead and waved for another. That's cool. He was a modern 6th century man. They would just stay together as long as it pleased him. <laughs> Come on, baby. Don't be so aloof. Queen Aloof forced a smile. Yeah, she had never heard that one before. She looked around her own longhouse, packed with Helgi's armed berserkers, draining her mead, and turned to Helgi. He must decide whether he was going to be an honorable man or not, she announced. More wine? Later that night, when King Helgi's men brought their king to the bedroom, they both raised their eyebrows and exchanged a glance at the sight of Queen Oluf laying on the bed. She could take it from here, she told them. Shut the door. Around four in the morning, Queen Oluf shook King Helgi's right-hand man awake. He held up a finger, vomiting, before asking how he could help the queen. She shivered in the morning chill. She said that his king had found her charms... Uh, lacking. He was back at the ship, and commanded for his men to meet him there. He didn't want to spend another minute in this kingdom. The berserker shrugged. Whatever. He started waking up his men, and, after a lot of groans and even more vomiting, the heavily hungover Vikings made their way back to the boat. When they arrived, they didn't see their disappointed king anywhere, only a sack that Queen Oluf's men had delivered earlier that night. The Vikings squinted out into the darkness of the early morning. They were sure Helgi would be there soon. After about 15 minutes, when they were ready to sail, they began to worry. They thought about sending someone back to Oluf to see where Helgi was, but that's when the sack started snoring. Quickly, the men cut the leather open, astonished that Helgi had been on the ship the whole time. When he'd arrived at Oluf's room the night before, she'd been ready with magic and charms to lull him into a false sense of security and a spell to put him under for hours. As it turned out, she didn't need any of that because he was so drunk that he passed out as soon as he was within falling distance of the bed. 
and he remained asleep as Olaf shaved every bit of hair off of his body before covering him in hot tar. She'd thrown his clothes in a leather bag, thrown him in said leather bag too, and tossed the bag onto the ship. After about an hour of trying to wake up Helgi's men, enough of the alcohol was finally out of their systems for them to wake up and rush to the boats. They splashed water on Helgi, who woke up laughing at his own joke. The last thing he truly remembered. <laughs> Aloof. Wait, he held his pounding head and stood, but this wasn't Aloof's bed at all. What happened? He reached for his axe and began shaking with rage. Queen Oloof had done this to him, and all he wanted to do was marry her without her consent. Was that really so bad? Well, he was going to do things the easy way, but now she'd shamed him. He would bring down the axe upon her kingdom, so... Oh, one minute. Helgi vomited off the edge of the ship, wiped his mouth, and continued his epic speech. Where was he? Oh yeah, blood and fire and... What were all those lights on the horizon? All those lights, as it turned out, were Queen Olu's friends. The minute she heard that Helgi was on her shore, she'd sent out messages to all her allies and client kingdoms. She knew that they wouldn't be there in time to stop the Danish king that night, but they arrived even sooner than she hoped, as the naked, shaved, and hungover king watched with wide eyes as mounted warriors began flooding over the hill in the light of the morning. He decided that he and his equally hungover crew should probably drink some water, and also maybe get out of there as quickly as possible, because he was starting to think that Queen Oluf might not be that into him. We'll find things getting far darker, but that will be right after this. All right, now back to the show. telling that this was written in the 13th century, because the blame for the events in question was placed squarely on Queen Oluf, or, quote, her flagrant misdeed of having mocked such a king in this way. Never mind that Helgi backed her into a corner, and it was painfully obvious that she wasn't into it. Now, if you like that rare bit of justice served to a sleazy Viking king, I am very sorry about what happens next. You see, not content to learn any lesson whatsoever, Helgi went back to Saxony. There, it turned out Helgi wasn't so brave when he wasn't catching queens flat-footed, and instead of facing her and her allies in a straight fight, he preferred to sneak around. He dressed himself in the guise of a beggar and had his men lug multiple chests of gold out into the forest. Then, he hobbled to the city, returning to the treasure with Queen Olaf's wide-eyed servant. Helgi explained that the queen owned the treasure because it was on her land, and he wouldn't bring bad fortune and the equivalent of a vengeful Valkyrie after him by trying to keep the money. Did, did the slave think Queen Olaf would come get the treasure alone? The servant furrowed his brow. From a story perspective, that didn't make any sense. Like, why would she come alone into the forest and not send all of her servants just to get the money? That wouldn't make any sense. But what about from a plot perspective? Helgi asked accentuating his fake hobble. Like, what if the saga writers were strongly biased against a powerful queen and wanted to take her down a notch or ten? Helgi ventured. The servant nodded. Okay, yeah, that did make sense. So, in the dead of night, Queen Olaf arrived completely alone at the clearing. I guess ready to drag two full chests of treasure back on her own? 
It was so dark that she didn't see the shadow growing behind her. And by the time her hand was on her knife, it was too late. Helgi had her. I honestly like the character of Queen Aloof, and I wish I could tell you that she got away. I have no doubt that she fought, but Helgi had caught her completely unaware. He took his vengeance against her for humiliating him right there in the clearing, and then, dragging her back to his ship, did the same for several days before throwing her out and leaving her to walk back to her kingdom. For several days, Queen Olaf didn't see anyone, and a few weeks later, her worst fears were confirmed. Quickly, she tied up all loose ends. Even the servant that had brought her the news of the treasure was quietly given away to travelers from Constantinople for a generous price, on the condition that he never set foot in Saxony again. Then, she gathered her most trusted handmaids to her. In the end, word would never really get out about Yursa, Oluf's daughter, by Helgi. Oluf couldn't stand the sight of the baby. So put off was she by the little girl that the queen could barely bother to name her, giving her only her dog's name, Yursa. Quietly, the girl was wrapped in cloth and left at the doorstep of a childless elderly couple, as was the start of, like, every fairy tale. And, just like a fairy tale, 13 years later, when the beautiful Yursa showed kindness to a beggar, and that beggar turned out to be a king, Yursa couldn't believe her luck. It was just like the stories. Though, since a lot of fairy tales are tinged with death and incest, that description actually fits pretty well. Because, unbeknownst to either of them, that beggar, who was old enough to be her father, was actually her own father. You see, Helgi would pop into Saxony from time to time for some reason, and, incognito in the exact costume he had worn to assault the queen, hit on any beautiful girl he happened to see, even if said beautiful girl was his secret 13-year-old daughter. He even remarked that she didn't look like a normal peasant. What? She was born to unknown parents about the last time he was there and sexually assaulted the queen? Huh, that must be a coincidence. They should probably get married. And so he swooped her up, took her back to his ship, and when Queen Oluf learned of this, she laughed for a day straight. Over the following years, Oluf savored this time bomb, while Helgi and Yursa welcomed the birth of their baby boy, Hrolf. But that wasn't all the news. Kror, Helgi's older brother, traded his half of the kingdom for a ring, a family heirloom that had been in their family for years. And because this is a Norse saga, and you never take the ring when offered, things started going downhill for Hror. Jarl Seville died, and his son took over. And his son, being the complete jerk that he was, felt that the family ring was very precious to him. And so he traveled to Britain, asked his uncle Hror if he could look at the ring, and when he did, he tossed it into a fjord, because it wasn't fair for Hror to have something that he didn't. Well, Hror decided to take this narcissist down a peg, by literally cutting him down to having a peg. He cut off one of the punk's legs. This kid, however, bounced back, stabbing his uncle before sending his Vikings in full force and demanding his uncle's widow's hand in marriage. Time passed, and Hror's widow wrote to her brother-in-law, Helgi, not one to not respond. Helgi captured his nephew, 
broke each of his limbs beyond recognition and sent him back home to live out the rest of his life in pain and shame. I'm not sure if it's worse to be fighting Vikings or to be part of their family. At this point, however, we return to the family question. Queen Oluf was displeased. After several years, her gross little time bomb hadn't gone off yet. So she would help things along by taking a diplomatic trip to Denmark. No way, you're the Queen of Saxony? Yersa asked. She was from Saxony too. Small world. Oh, you have no idea, Oluf replied and took a long drink. For some reason, she had refused to meet with King Helgi. So, you happy with your marriage? Oluf asked. Before Yersa could even finish saying that she was very happy being married to the most noble and famous of kings, Oluf blurted out that it was too bad. Helgi was Yersa's father, and Oluf was her mother. Boom. Anachronistic bomb dropped. Yersa froze and looked into the queen's eyes, who was clearly savoring this moment. The only thing that could top this feeling was the moment Helgi found out. As Yersa sat there in shock, Oluf told her of the meadow and the ship, what her husband had done. Yersa broke down and cursed her mother. Oluf gritted her teeth. Seriously, I cannot catch a break in the story. She put her hand on her daughter's back. It was Helgi's actions that had caused all of this. And if Yersa came with her, the girl would have a home. Baby, please. Helgi pleaded the moment he found out, then grimaced. That was a poor choice of words. He understood she was mad, but, you know, it wasn't like he had raised her. Couldn't they just forget about this and keep living as man and wife? Her eyes widened in disgust. No, what was wrong with him? Could they go back to being man and wife? He was her father. He nodded and held up both hands. Yes, and as her father and her husband, he commanded her to stay. Yersa? She, Yersa, but where'd she go? Oh, she's gone, isn't she? Oluf sneered, nodded, and followed her daughter out the door. Her revenge was complete. Now, if Ben and Jerry's made a mead-flavored ice cream, that would have been just what Helgi was looking for, because after losing both his wife and his daughter in a gross and confusing breakup, his saga says that he was so anguished that he took to his bed. Meanwhile, Yersa was single and, well, not really ready to mingle at all, actually, which was good because none of the kings in the region really wanted to marry the ex-wife slash daughter of the Danish king. That is, until Adils came along. King Adils was the king of Sweden and ruled from a stronghold in Uppsala. He was deeply unpopular, though the story really doesn't tell us why. It says he was rich and greedy, though. Regardless, he was not well-liked. But when he heard that the daughter of the Queen of Saxony and the King of Denmark was back on the market, and the only reason the other kings didn't want to marry her was because she just got out of a confusing relationship with her scary dad, he jumped all in and sought her hand. Queen Oluf approved of the match. And Yersa said she didn't care much either way, which is definitely the response you want from a proposal. Oluf told Yursa that Adils, the Viking king equivalent of a participation trophy, was the best she could hope for after her marriage to Helgi. So Yursa shrugged. 
Sure. Whatever. Elsewhere, back in Denmark, Helgi heard a knocking at the door. He tried to ignore it, but as the wind picked up, he sighed. He couldn't leave someone out there in the cold. He dusted the Cheeto crumbs off his tank top and sweatpants and made his way to the door. Ugh, what happened here? Everything, King Helgi asked as he saw the person? It was humanoid, definitely, but its twisted face was hidden under piles of stinking cloth. He waved the thing inside, and it limped into the room. He said it was welcome to some straw and a bearskin by the fire, but the creature turned to him. It said that its life was at stake. It wanted to sleep next to King Helgi in his bed. King Helgi grimaced. Okay, fine, if it was that dire, but keep your clothes on. The king brushed empty chip bags and takeout containers from the other side of the bed, dropped down onto the hay of his own side, pulled his blanket over, and big good night to the stranger. But the king didn't go to sleep. He just laid there, back to the stranger, and only then did he realize how weird this whole thing was. He didn't know this person from the man on the moon, whoever that was, if it was a person at all. And it stunk, or actually did it. Huh. He didn't notice the stench anymore. King Helgi looked over his shoulder and, huh, okay. He was pretty sure she didn't look like that the whole time. Lying next to him wasn't a stinky mythological creature, but a beautiful woman in a silk gown. And she was getting up. It's said that Helgi turned to her, quote, tenderly, though I don't know what tender looks like to a Viking king, but he begged her to stay. What was going on? Who or what was she? She announced that none of that mattered to Helgi. He had done his part. The curse placed in her by her stepmother. He, a king, had broken that curse by sharing a bed with her. Now, I don't think I quite understand Helgi's charm or how, when he saw how beautiful the stranger was, he just decides that he would arrange a quick wedding for them because she pleased him so well. But whatever he said, it worked. And she came back to bed. The next morning, he awoke to the woman getting dressed. At the sound of him stirring, the woman met his gaze and announced that they wouldn't be getting married. I mean, they didn't even know each other and they had just been together because of his lust. Massively burying the lead, she then explained that she was with child. She was leaving, but this time next year, he was to visit his child down at the docks. If he did not, he would pay for it. Without hesitation, she wrapped herself in a cloak and stepped out into the cold of a Danish December. Helgi called out a goodbye from the door and watched as the magical stranger, this woman who had turned his life around, disappeared into the morning light. Three years later, in December, King Helgi furrowed his brow there was something he was supposed to... Oh, no. Wow, yeah. His daughter. He never went to visit his daughter down at the docks. What was that? Like, two years ago that he was supposed to go? It would probably be all right, right? 
he grabbed his furry, Game of Thrones-style animal skin cloak and flung it over his shoulders, exploding out the door, and he found himself looking square into the face of the beautiful stranger who had visited him three years ago. No, no, it would not be all right, she said. King Helgi learned that the woman was one of the elves from Alfheim, and he had made a very bad choice by not going to see his daughter two years prior. The woman waved, and from the back, one of her elf attendants walked a young girl up to Helgi. The elfin stranger announced that the girl, the half-elf, was named Skuld, and that Helgi's kinsman would pay for him, ignoring the elf stranger's request. And with that, she rode off. Now, it had been several years at this point since Yursa had left, and Rolf, Helgi's son, slash, I guess, grandson, gross, was now nearly old enough to go raiding with his father. Except he didn't go this time, because this time, it was personal. In the year since his liaison with the elf stranger, Helgi had gotten his groove back. And now, he was sailing to Sweden. He would confront King Adils, because he was going to win Yursa back. In the end, young Hroth never really knew the truth of how his father died. The few men that had survived the attack by King Adil's berserkers said that they had been invited to a dinner that night by the king. And, blinded by his love for Yursa, Helgi had attended only lightly armed with a small group of bodyguards. On his way back from dinner, he had met 12 berserkers on the road and an army blocking his retreat. He was cut down as King Adil's laughed and Yursa wept. As the crown was placed on his head, and his father's subjects bowed before him, Hrolf knew one thing. He had to avenge his father and kill the 12 berserkers, and to do so, he would have to put together a team of his own. Next week, we wrap up the story of Hrolf Kraki, where there will not only be far less rape and incest, always a nice touch, but we'll get into more familiar territory when it comes to these Norse sagas, with Norns, more elves, trolls, and everyone's favorite wandering troublemaker, Odin himself, back to help out by not helping. If you'd like to support the show beyond leaving a review or telling a friend, there's also a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of a corgi butt shoulder bag, for anyone who's ever looked at a corgi butt and been like, I need that with me wherever I go, and honestly, no one will blame you, corgis are adorable, you can get extra episodes, source pack ebooks, and ad-free versions of the show. So go to support.mythpodcast.com for more information on the membership. The creature this week is the Patasola and Latunda from Latin America. I'll start with the Patasola, which literally means one foot, though both creatures are women with just one foot. The Patasola has one hairy goat leg which ends in a bovine-like foot. In her natural state, she has one breast, bulging eyes, cat-like fangs, a hooked nose, and, according to one thing that I'm not entirely sure isn't a typo, cookie-like hair? She'll only let you see that side of her if you're about to be eaten by her, because, surprise, a nefarious-looking creature roaming the wilderness also really wants to eat you. Shocking. The Patasola almost exclusively targets lonely men, and then, only when they're thinking about women, seeing an easy mark and an easier meal, the Patasola will appear in the form of a beautiful woman, 
or dog, or cow, which, okay, and she'll lure the men away from their group. Sufficiently far enough away for exsanguination, the fangs come out, and the men are never heard from again. So don't follow dangerous looking creatures into the dark forest. You know this, I've said it a hundred times, or do follow them. In the legends of Colombia and Ecuador, there's a being known as La Tunda, who is kind of like the Patasola, but also very different. She has one leg and can shapeshift, but she's not quite as good as the Patasola. So her fake leg will always be some form of a wooden whisk. If you're a guy, she'll lure you away and eat you. Basically, if you're a lonely woodcutter and things seem to be too good to be true, they probably are. But if you're a child, you're in luck. Yeah, she'll lure you away from your family and you'll disappear forever. But the upshot? All you can eat shrimp. She'll transform into an imperfect likeness of the child's mother and then lure them off into the forest where, to keep them docile, she'll just keep giving them shrimp. The state even has its own word. The tunda does it, so it's entundamiento, which I guess is the state of being in a food coma after an all-you-can-eat buffet. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes, and I want to say thanks again to Magoosh.com for sponsoring us this week. Do your career goals require you to take a standardized test, like the GRE, GMAT, LSAT, MCAT, or SAT? Magoosh Online Test Prep provides you with the tools you need to get a great score, like study schedules, up-to-date practice questions, video lessons, and support from expert tutors. Study anytime, anywhere, on desktop or mobile. Visit Magoosh, M-A-G-O-O-S-H, dot com, and enter the promo code MYTHS for a 15% off discount. All right, thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Hold up. 